And welcome to Mrs. D's Storytime. We are reading the book In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF Internationals. And we are on Chapter 8, Part 2. You're very lucky, Mrs. Kuhn, he said, to get any kind of low-priced place in Dallas. Even without stipulations of any kind, it's almost impossible. Of course, you haven't got this place yet, but it answers your desires perfectly. It is a five-bedroom cottage with a screened-in back porch. It is within walking distance of the seminary and also of the high school. It has a fenced-in backyard, and it is only a half a block from the grocery and meat markets, and I think you can buy it for 4500 The one snag is your stipulation that you get possession by July the 28th. The present owner has bought another place, which he wishes to combine his business and home under one roof, but he cannot get possession of it that soon, I fear. I will take you out there now, however, and we will talk with them. You can imagine how eager I felt as we drove up to 1718 Ripley Street. Hmm, it needs paint. John won't like its present appearance, I thought to myself, but it was a surprisingly quiet neighborhood. Across the street was a small park, and the next-door houses were not too close. It had a long, covered front porch with a baby gate already in. The owners were Christians and easy to talk to. I explained our purpose in coming to Dallas and added that if we could not get possession when we needed it, it would be useless to buy. Well, the owner said, we might go and live with our daughter for a month or so. We'll give you an answer tomorrow. The third day after I arrived in Dallas, the cottage was ours. Money paid, deed signed, and it stipulated possession by July the 28th. I felt I must go and tell the YMCA secretary. I just thought I'd like to tell you, I said, that I have cottage already, bought and paid for. It meets all the stipulations and conforms to all we wanted in addition. She fell back in her chair and went limp, staring at me. Then, as my truthfulness penetrated her understanding, she sat up straight and gasped. Mrs. Kuhn, you renew my faith in God. It has renewed mine, too. That is the outcome of all God's platforms. The platform of taunt nerves. He allowed them to stretch and stretch and stretch, but not to snap. And when the time came that he said, Enough. He had planned this lovely thing for us. No discipline seems unpleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, God's later, if it is so delightful on earth, what will later be in heaven? No millionaire furnishing his mansion had half the fun I did furnishing our cottage. Of course, most things I had bought were secondhand. I procured a map in Dallas from the real estate office, purchased the early morning newspaper, and looked up at advertisements of secondhand things, noted what I wanted, and started out in pursuit. I had no responsibilities and no time scheduled to hurry me, no baby depending on my quick return, no pressure of any kind. I had asked the Lord for a piano, an icebox, an electric washing machine, in addition to necessities. He gave them all. Long nights of uninterrupted sleep renewed me. And by the time three weeks had passed, I was longing for my family to come. And oh, the joyous day when I welcomed them to the cottage, which God had so wonderfully given to us. Of Dallas days being together in our own wee place was an outstanding joy. Next to that, for me, were the young people from the seminary who began to come to us. It started with John handing me an invitation one day to student's wife's prayer meeting. You're a student's wife now, he said with a grin, so I gladly went. Of course, I was the only middle-aged person present. The bevy of lovely young womanhood that gathered for prayer simply thrilled me. Many were earning money to put their husbands through seminary. Others were young mothers and homekeepers. All were the Lord's children and eager to have his best for themselves and their beloved partners. We took turns in leading with a short message, and it was a joy to hear them pass on blessings from his word. 
I especially enjoyed the fact that I was received at first as only another unit in the group. But the fateful evening came when a new newcomer recognized me as the author of Precious Things of Lasting Hills, and I was hauled out of my prayer's obscurity and put on the pedestal of an author. How I did love those girls. Even their culture charm meant something to me. I really had to laugh at myself. I so enjoyed their beauty, their grace of movement, the refined good taste in their dress, and so on. The primitive tribes, of course, although they develop spiritually and mentally, are still crude and uncouth in their social habits. Something within me had long been starved for the refined beauty of my own kind. Such as these girls showed with every movement, and I drank it in eagerly. Knowing the wives led to knowing the husbands, and often vice versa, as John brought in fellow students from for a chat or a cup of tea, and then I found out who the wife was. In but a short time after the seminary began, we were having a small group come to our home every Friday night for Bible study and prayer. As I look back on them now, every single couple of that group reached the foreign field. Italy, Switzerland, Formosa, China, the borders of Nepal, the borders of Afghanistan had felt the touch of Christ through those lives. That was a real gift from God, which has permanently enriched us. John had expected a full year at Dallas Theological Seminary, but the atom bomb changed many plans. The war ended. The State Department began to issue passports to China once more. The country was still too torn up for women and children to return safely, but the China Inland Mission sent a letter asking the superintendents to go back to China one year ahead of their families. So we had to face it. From the beginning, the motto of our married life has been God first, and every now and again we're challenged with it anew. It is our joy to reclaim it, so that this time there was no argument. The Lord gave us Second Corinthians 4.12. So till death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. We felt it meant death in the sense of breaking up our family life, that the Lesu might gain spiritually. And so John sailed for China in January of 1946. I was grateful for the extra year with Catherine, and this was a discussion of platforms, not really a record of family life. But I was continually grateful for the way God had fathered and mothered her in the years we had been forced apart, and very grateful for her loving companionship and help in almost two years that we were together. When it came to leaving Dallas, the Lord again worked wonderfully. I wanted to sell the house as it stood, furniture and all. One day, an elderly married couple knocked at our door. They had heard we were thinking of selling and asked how much we wanted. I said, 6100 and they paid the full price in cash. So the Lord has given us a home of our own, practically rent-free, and money enough to pay our way back to Pennsylvania. The taunt nerves were relaxed by the time the return to China had come. The platform of taunt nerves is not without its own kind of suffering. It might be he has to allow us to get desperate, that we would be willing to attempt the impossible with him, before he sends us relaxation. Whatever the reason for his allowing these circumstances, it is also a place where his fellowship is found. It is a place where his power will be manifested. And the end of it is that we know him better. You renew my faith in God will be the testimony of onlookers. Shadow and shine art thou, dear Lord, to me. Pillar of cloud and fire, I follow thee. What through the way is long, in thee my heart is strong. Thou art my joy, my song. Praise, praise to thee, Amy Carmichael. Chapter 9, Seeming Defeat Back to China on a slow, small freighter we traveled, Danny and I. Catherine, we left in Philadelphia with the Sutherlands. Promise me not to cry, sister, shouted the small three-year-old brother, 
alarmed at her tearful face as a train pulled out of the station. Promise me not to cry. We sailed from Houston. There had been a longshore men strike and ships were still scarce, so we had no choice. The Joseph Lee had no railings and took 46 days to make the passage. Miss Ruth Norwalk of our mission traveled with us and the only other passengers was a young mother and two children. Mrs. Dorothy Greenwood was going to join her aviator husband in Shanghai. Our cargo was kerosene and cotton. Some of the crew wanted to back out when they heard it, but this was one reason the old ballers were not pushed very hard, making our passage leisurely. Ruth was a great blessing to us all. She proved an enchanted storyteller to the children and was so unselfish in helping us mothers. We began to have Sunday school, and Mrs. Green asked if we could have it every day. We did, and we had Bible study with her, none of us realizing how God had tenderly arranged that she might learn to know him before impending tragedy struck her. The day before we landed, the door of my cabin was thrown open and in dashed beautiful Dorothy Greenwood, screaming and weeping. She had just heard over the radio that her husband had been killed when his airplane crashed on Christmas Day. It was a sour, sad privilege to care for her. I had expected John to meet us at Shangri-La Wharf, but he had been delayed. So Danny and I, arriving in the big CIM compound in bitter cold weather, had to wait. John had been touring the province of Yunnan in the survey of the tribes and had not been able to get back to civilization when he had hoped. Lucius was with him. Jim Greenwood's crash was followed by a similar catastrophe in which Mrs. Mueller of CIM and her three children were killed. Little Peter Mueller had been playing with Danny the day before, so it brought it acutely home to us. In both cases, the fault was not the pilot's, but the careless preparation of the plane. Journalissimo Chang ordered all planes grounded for an investigation, and our wait in Shanghai was prolonged. The bridges which had been blown up by the Japanese was still not repaired, so transportation into the far interior was a real problem. When John finally did arrive, the matter was discussed carefully. It was decided that John and Eric Cox drove the baggage of several families, Coons included, in a truck, and that Danny and I go by air. The men would have to drive across China with broken roads, half-mended bridges, and other dangers. It would be too hard a trip for a woman and a child. Eventually, Danny and I obtained space in an army freighter, a flying fortress, and it was wonderful to arrive in balmy Yan'an after the bleak, cold Shanghai. In Kuming, we had to wait for John in the truck, but while there, we had a memorable reunion with Lucius. Ava and I had left in Tali with Mrs. Watson. When the Watsons left for furlough, Ava entered Tali Hospital to train as a nurse. We would see her as we passed through. In returning to China this time, the one thing I had feared was travel on the Burma Road. Yet that term... The only time I had to make a long trip on it was with my husband as a driver. From Kuming to Pashan, we rode on the truck, and for the first and only time, I thoroughly enjoyed the Burma Road. I once heard Ruth Stoll say that the dangers she had feared when she went to South America never met her, but the dangers far worse awaited her. I had to smile, remembering my last term in China when this had happened also to me. So it does no good to imagine the evils that await us. For the unimagined ones, the Lord is sufficient so to let us be at peace. At Tali, we met Eva. She pleaded with tears to be allowed to go back to Lisulin with us. Oh, my dear, I reasoned, you have only a year and a half left and you will graduate. If you leave now, you will get no credit whatsoever. I don't care about credits or certificates, she cries. I am happy just to be with you and Mapa and Danny. If it's not been for my stern lessons in 1942 about the inordinate affections, I would have been tempted to take her with us. I would sorely need help such as hers in the days ahead. 
but those lessons had left scars which protected Ava from my possessiveness, and though she did not see it then, I am sure she has been grateful many times since. Our dear little Ava is behind the bamboo curtain now, and we have never heard from her. The last word was that she was trying to get permission to study to be a doctor, so I'm sure she understands now why we let her cry in 1947. Failing to get permission to give her for nursing, Ava asked for her annual leave in order to be with us on the trip to Pashan. Nurse Irene Nevelle did the same, and so we had them in the truck on the next lap of the journey, and we needed them. Climbing a steep hairpin turn ascent, we came to a Chinese trunk nearly wrecked, with injured perhaps dying and lying on the road beneath. We stopped, and our two nurses administered first aid to them. At Pashan, the Christians received us joyfully. The China Inland Mission no longer had a house in that city, so we had all had to live in the chapel while John, as a superintendent, tried to rent another place for the missionaries who were to arrive soon after us. As a matter of fact, our own relatives, Catherine and David Harrison, were appointed to take charge of the Pashan work. This was to include caring for young workers who, we hoped, would later go to the tribes. So a large house was needed. Such a one was in prospect, and soon John was involved in all the slow bargaining of the East. Seeing that it was going to be a long process, it actually took three months before John was released to come into Lesulan and join us. I asked my husband to let Danny and me go into Lesulan ahead of him. Ava had to return to the hospital. Lucius was shaken to get home. He had been gone almost a year. There would then be no one to help me supervise Danny and only the public chapel to live in. So it was decided that Lucius escort us back to Oak Flat. Ava and Mrs. Nevelle traveled with us as far as Wahoo where the Lesu Trail enters the Burma Road. Here we said goodbye. Ava wept rebelliously, and we began the difficult over-the-mountain journey. I was surprised at the desolation of the trail. Little villages where we used to stop for lunch were now deserted ghost hamlets. There are too many robbers and gangs on the main road, explained Lucius. The people have fled out of sight. Soldiers, disbanded far from home, have turned bandit. It's still dangerous. We had Chinese coolies to carry us and our things, and they grumbled every stage. When we get the Sawin and meet the Lesu Christians, you will be well fed and your loads carried for you. We encouraged them. They were openly unbelieving. Yet it was true. The last day of the last steep 2,000-foot climb, Lesu with the horses were waiting for us. Oh, what a loving, jubilant reunion. Danny had a horse to himself, two Lesu, one on each side, walking close beside to guard the delighted three-year-old. Mummy, my horse has bells, and yours doesn't, he shouted in elation. My horse rides bumpily. The astonished Chinese had their loads taken off their shoulders and shifted onto the Lesu backs. When at the end of the climb, a delicious feast of pork was given to us all. One of these men came to me, his eyes shining. In Chinese, he said, It is true after all, lady, what you said. We tried to witness to him of the change Jesus Christ works in human lives. And we'll stop here and find out next time what happens. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now.